Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Hello, I'm Zubair Nasi. I'm the chairman of the Global Nash Council uh, and professor and chairman of the BD Liver and Obesity Research Program here at the Nova Health System right outside Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Ease of the Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. And today's episode, uh, we are going to address why diabetologists should uh, care about uh, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or metabolic-associated, metabolic dysfunction-associated uh, steatotic liver disease or MASLD, uh, the new terminology for this disease. It's very timely because yesterday was a diabetes day and um, we will hear about the incredible rise in the prevalence of, um, of uh, diabetes that's one of the important drivers of this disease. I'm uh, uh, pleased to be joined by uh, my friends and colleagues, um, Professor Laurent Castera, uh, Professor Amelia Gastelli, and Professor Camilla Dalby Hansen uh, from France, Italy, and uh, Denmark. So, uh, with this, I just wanted to spend just a, a minute to describe to you why we are having this conversation. Uh, well, not, MASLD is a very common liver disease. The prevalence, the global prevalence of MASLD worldwide is about 38%. But if you look at type 2 diabetics, the, pre- the prevalence of MASLD among type 2 diabetics is probably close to 65% or maybe even higher, maybe 68%. It's not only very common in that context, but also it's an important risk factor for progression of this liver disease. Uh, in, in an important predictor of outcomes, including mortality, including impairment of patients' quality of life, and also an important contributor to economic burden of this disease. So it's timely to, um, to, to discuss this. And also, most of our patients come from primary care setting or in the general practice, practice setting, or from endocrinology or diabetology setting. The awareness about this disease is really lacking, especially in the front lines. That would make uh, quite a bit of sense. So this is a this is a program that will address this, and and I'm going to ask Camila to comment why there is a uh, lack of awareness, especially within matters in the and the and the endocrinology practices. What do you think, Camila? Yeah, thank you, thank you so much, and it's very nice to be here with you guys. So yeah, very interesting question, right? Why do we lack awareness? It's so important, not only to be able to detect the disease, but one of the things that is really important too is to increase awareness among patients, right? Because if they know that they are in a higher risk of getting a liver disease, to die from liver disease, they will automatically have a response, they will, um, you know, they will have increased motivation. We will empower them to take more care of their liver and hopefully like increase motivation. 
But why it's lacking, you know, so you have to help me here. It's it's so frustrating, right? Because many of us has, has been trying to push the agenda for a long time. And um, one of the things we do a lot in our research group is to try really to go through the media every time we have a new publication or something. We go to the media, we try to talk about it and latest go to the endocrinologist at our hospital to say, hey guys, maybe we should come here and have a fibro scan with us and, and we can kind of collab. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think part of this is probably sort of historical for decades, you know, some of us have been practicing here for decades um, in, in GI, hepatology and primary care, this was not considered to be a quote-unquote a disease. So our patients were told that this is not important. Your liver enzymes are related to quote-unquote, you know, having some um, fat in the liver, and that is not important, and just forget about it. So people have gotten to that mindset, even in, not only our patients, but also our providers, and that has to change. I think the effort that EASL uh, and ASLD led recently to uh, change the, no the nomenclature, the name of this disease, not only was related to you know, some stigma issues, uh, lack of connectivity really to the pathogenesis of this disease, uh, but, but also to, to, to raise awareness. And part of this was to you know, en enhance communication between patients. And, and now, of course, the new terminology of MASLD hopefully will help with this awareness and also make it uh, make it an important non-communicable disease and and easily led actually this effort by uh, being uh, a, a part of the of the uh, of the you know uh, WHO's meeting in last May to have a site meeting and have leaders from, from the different part of the world to come in. And really, we all need to push this so that it becomes an important non-communicable disease. Laurent, you know, one of the um, um, one of the criticism of our field historically has been, well, you know, you can only uh, 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 diagnose the other hepatitis by a biopsy, and now we have a lot of other tools that can be used easily. That can be used easily in the in in, in um, you know clinical practice, especially with the guidelines that's coming out, and especially in the in the you know diabetes guidelines. What 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 is your approach? What's your recommendation? What do you recommend that the, that our colleagues in endocrine and diabetes do? So yeah, uh, you are right. We, I mean. As a pathologist now, uh, we're really used to uh, have NIT practice, and these ITs have really changed the practice of a pathology over the last 10 years. But the truth is, and of course I would value Amalia's point, uh, feedback, uh, is that GPs forget that most diabetic patients are sitting around 80 85%. Uh, France, this is the case, and uh, 10 to 15% in endocrinology in diabetes clinic. But both GP and endocrinologists have very low awareness regarding the NIT. They're not familiar as we are. So I agree with you. I think it's very important to, to educate our colleague how can we, we, we use them. So just to make a long story short for the, uh, our audience, uh, we have two types of approach a serum-based approach for which uh, is the most popular. So the FIP4 is H-transaminase platelet count. And then more specific tests 
that include a biomarker like ELF and the measure of liver stiffness, usually using BCT, but you have other techniques such as MRE that is more sophisticated or shear wave elastographies that is less validated. So basically, uh, FIP4, uh, VCT, and ELF score in our practice. Amelia, I mean, these, these non-invasive tests have been around and have been now, you know, validated. Uh, they have become a part of some of the, even endocrinology and diabetology sort of guidelines. Uh, how often are they being used right now? What are some of the barriers so that we can actually, you know, help our colleagues sort of implement the guidelines that, that's been recommended by their own societies? Yes, it's as you said, you know, it's and also as Camilla and Laurent said, this there hasn't been enough awareness about the fatty liver disease and the link with diabetes. And this was to me always strange because the liver is the organ that makes the glucose. So if diabetes is diagnosed as hyperglycemia, so why not looking at, at the liver? And then we heard and we know now that the liver is also making all the lipids and is also so a major contribution to the cardiometabolic and cardiovascular risk. So the, the test, as you said, and also Laurent said, is usually um, they have been ignored because uh, most of the diabetic have normal liver enzymes and, and the, the fatty liver disease is, uh, so, sorry, the muscle D is a silent uh, disease. So this is why uh, the endocrinologists and the diabetologists has ignored this. Um, I think that uh, having the test uh, implemented automatically, so when uh, the, the patients are doing their routine test, uh, they also have an outcome like the EGFR if they have it directly in their uh, um, in their printout uh, uh, a test like uh, the, the FIB4, then uh, it will be really important to uh, increase the awareness because in this way they can see if there is something wrong and uh, as i said that the liver enzyme are always uh, very often within the normal ranges so just looking at the alt and the st is not enough and i think the fib4 has been so far the a very simple and uh, very inexpensive test and it should be used more and of course when is altered to go through more um, sophisticated exams you know, along you, you and I have spoken about you know some of the things you you do in your clinic in terms of you know sort of how hepatologists can actually help in this you know care pathway to take the lead or bring in sort of endocrinologists into a, a an approach or or even you know taking a, a hepatology room in the clinic with the diabetologist. What's your what's your approach and what do you recommend for for some of us to do? So. Uh, you're right. I think we really need to communicate and to collaborate with the diabetologists. Uh, one of the issues was struck me is the fact that um, diabetologists in their clinic, they're used to screen for every organ. So nephropathy, cardiopathy, every organ of the liver. So we need to put the liver in the radar of the diabetologists. I think this is the the first issue and, and raise your awareness. Uh, so what we have done, for instance, in, instead of waiting for the diabetologist to refer the patients, 
is to go as an hepatologist in this clinic. And this is what I've been doing for the last five years. Uh, this was for a research project. And basically what we're doing, we were seeing all comers that come for their annual checkup and uh, look at their transaminates and so whether they have this uh, on ultrasound. And of course, we discovered that most of our colleague diabetologists did not perform ultrasound on a regular basis. And they were very, we have slightly elevated transaminase, but I think they've been taught that it's okay. They might have a bit of steroids, but it's not worrisome. And uh, what we have done is, uh, and I, I, I want to stress because usually I think most diabetologists, if not hepatologists, would tend to think that uh, the upper limit normal for transaminase ILT is 40. Uh, we've been more strained and we, we use very low threshold, 20 units for female and 30 units for male. And if the ALT were elevated or if there was steatosis, uh, we've been crazy enough to propose a liver biopsy. And we've been able to perform a liver biopsy in uh, more than 300 patients, convince them. Then this liver biopsy were also centrally read by, by Pierre to be sure what we're looking at. And at the end of the day, uh, we end up with have so all cameras completely unaware of having liver disease. Uh, 58% at NASH, which was expected according to analysis. But what was less expected is the high prevalence of advanced fibrosis, that is F3, F4, in 38%. So more than one third at advanced fibrosis. And of course, those patients qualify for treatment if a treatment is approved, but they also be included in surveillance program for HCC and for portal hypertension. So this is always what people claim, you know, when you try to raise awareness to, to convince them to screen for mesothelial disease, they say, but there's no current approved drug, so why should I screen? <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, the reason, I mean, in my opinion, this is a low-hanging fruit because we know that, as you mentioned initially, there are the high risk of uh, having severe liver disease. And even though we don't currently have a treatment, we can still enter them in surveillance program, which of course change the management of this patient. Yeah, absolutely important. I, I think it's interesting. I know Camila has uh, 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 a comment, but it's so important that we just finished the meta-analysis of uh, of uh, global uh, meta-analysis of, of endocrinology and diabetology and the prevalence of uh, advanced fibrosis is exactly what you say. This is over 35%. Um, the, the, the issue of screening is important because we just presented at the liver meeting here in Boston the... Um, Cost effectiveness of uh, of of uh, implementing the guidelines, so all the guidelines, and there were nine different strategies. And when you look at, and this was from a U.S. perspective, obviously we're going to have to repeat that from the other countries. Screening is cost effective because you you will rem remove so many additional barriers. Uh, Camila, what is your your approach to this, and and what what tests do you uh, recommend uh, 
dermatologist. Well, I just had add a, a couple of comments to to you, uh, Laurent. Very nice points. And what I really think is is a shame is these patients who come to the hospital for their annual checks or their six months checks. They come to us. They come right, you know, right there. It would be awful that we did not find liver disease in these patients because they are here. So, so it's it's really a shame that we do not find them. And the whole issue around no treatment that's been set for for many years, I don't really agree because first of all, many of patients with diabetes also have uh, also drink alcohol. So this is an obvious treatment. Um, and second of all, we, we know that that when you 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 raise awareness, when you have the focus, first of all, we have the DLP one analogs, of course, they can shift maybe their diabetes, uh, diabetes medications, it's one approach, but and second of all, just, you know, the awareness part, we see that when people get their liver health checks, they suddenly stop drinking that much alcohol and they start you know maybe moving a bit more and stuff like that so yeah yeah i, I think this is such an important uh issue camilla that you brought up the issue of uh, of alcohol uh was really an important point because you know and, and maybe not everywhere in the world but in a large portion of the world um there's really not you know something that is pure pure uh, muscle D without alcohol, right? So this meta-ALD uh, that's created by the new nomenclature is really important, will give us an, a sort of an understanding of, is there a safe level of alcohol consumption in patients that have steatotic liver disease? Or there is none, we just have to sort of understand this. And I suspect that the more component of metabolic syndrome you have, the you know even the small amount of alcohol consumption could be damaging. So we need to understand this. Amelia, your comments, and also maybe Amelia, you can comment about how do how do we actually implement something that should be implemented no matter what, which is the lifestyle intervention. Whatever drugs we have, it'll be great, but it's got to be a combination with lifestyle. So both comments, Amelia, please. Yes, uh, sorry, I actually agree with you and also with the comment from Camila because. Uh, um, it's if one side uh, we don't have uh, uh, medications for treating uh, a mesh, we have medication uh, to reduce uh, f- uh, the statotic liver. So we know that uh, uh, life uh, the diet, hypocaloric diet, but also diet composition because it has to be uh, low in saturated fat and low in sugar, especially uh, the sucrose because the sucrose is uh, stimulating the lipogenesis. So all these things and weight loss are decreasing uh, the the amount of fat in the liver. And this is the first step, of course, is not curing the fibrosis, but uh, of course, you know, you need to start from uh, one point and it's very important to, to change so the lifestyle move a little bit more for sure and change also not only the amount of calories but also the composition of the diet so it shouldn't be like uh, the uh, the big burger or uh, the, uh, the, the but also a healthy diet could be Mediterranean diet could be but it has to be with the the right amount of calories that is different for every person because you know if you are very sedentary you need less calories if you move a lot you need 
more calories, lose weight. And for the diabetic, there are a lot of medication that have been proven to decrease fat in the liver. And that is very important. And also some of these medication, they also, at the same time, they decrease the cardiovascular risk and the renal disease that are two comorbidities that are very often um, coupled with uh, the steatotic liver disease. So I think that if it is true, we don't have any approved medication for a mesh. We have a lot of medication in the diabetic that uh, are proven to be protective against uh, the progression of the disease in the some of the in most of the trial they reduce uh, a liver uh, the amount of fat in the liver but they also reduce uh, um, the sometimes uh, they, they reduce also the inflammation not they they um, resolve NASH, even if the, on the fibrosis, they are not so effective. So I think we have uh, um, a lot of medication that now are proven and that should be first line for this uh, subject with diabetes, because uh, we don't have to wait. And most of the drugs have been shown that you have to intervene in, in people that are already pre-diabetic and uh, to start the lifestyle intervention and eventually uh, some other more stronger um, um, medication and treatment. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point, and and um, uh, I, th I think the the key, you know, to to since we we are all involved in the global council and the global sort of approach to this is to make it, of course, make the the the, the diet uh, culture regionally sort of acceptable. So the uh, the Mediterranean diet would be great for uh, you know a lot of countries, but may not be applicable to Asia uh, um, or, or even South America. So I think you know one thing that's really be really going to be important is to make sure that ultra processed food is avoided. You know foods and drinks. I think that's really critical because that you know all the chemicals and toxins that allow these these foods to stay on a on, in a can on a shelf for a very long time is also, you know, will drive this disease. And I think, you know, avoiding daily consumption of red meat is 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 probably should be, should be avoided. In contrast, you you know, you have you you have to actually consume a, a protein, high protein uh, diet, and that could be with 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 you know uh, 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 white meat or or vegetable, uh, you know, food, you know, the vegetarian diet, some people think, well, you know, the vegetarian diet is great, but, you know, if you actually, you know, eat French fries every day, that's not going to, that's not going to be a good, good, uh, uh, you know, lifestyle. And of course, you suggest that the activity side of things, really important to combine that with activity because then the, the, the impact will be even more law. How, how about your, your, your perspective on this? Yes, two, two short comments regarding alcohol. I think everyone knows alcohol can lead to cirrhosis, but most patients are not aware that sugar and fat also lead to cirrhosis and especially ultra-processed uh, food. Also, you, you need, I think, to inform patients that alcohol plus diabetes equals three or four is not two in terms of risk. Uh, they are synergic. So this is also an important information to carry to, to patients. Now, second comment regarding treatment. From our experience in the diabetes clinic, it's interesting to see that there was a lot of skepticism regarding masking. Is it a real disease or is it a disease invented by the hepatologist? Because epilepsy. And of course, when you come with the result of a liver biopsy, Knowing that the patient that had been followed up for 10 years has cirrhosis, it changed, I think, the perspective 
and the mindset of, of our colleagues. And I've seen really that happening. And also uh, in the indications for treatment, for instance, uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, now I think at least our diabetologists take into account the liver uh, or the, the treatment of diabetes. And, and I think this is a, a very important and interesting shift. And I would, of course, be uh, interested to, to get your feedback, Amelia. What do you think, Amelia? I think, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get uh, some perspective from Amelia about the drugs that are being used, but I also like to use, uh, you know, sort of at least get some perspective from Camilla. What other things you can actually use in this sort of toolbox that comes from endocrinologists to, uh, to, to, you know, to use today, but then also what do you expect is going to come down the, down the pike in the next, you know, five years? Amelia, you're first. Well, uh, you know, it's um, Laurent has mentioned the GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, that, of course, uh, they've been around for several years now. We all know how good effect they have. But uh, now there are the new double and uh, probably in the near future, so triple uh, GLP-1 agonists that uh, are apparently are much stronger also because they uh, increase weight loss. Some of these compounds have a weight loss that is comparable to um, bariatric surgery to at least to certain bariatric surgery so i think it's um it's important because uh, um and there is a, a major decrease in uh, in liver fat as with the glp1 the single they have been shown to uh, have a resolution of nash so i think this is um, a drug that is very important especially in the diabetic settings um other drugs that are associated with the decrease in in, uh, in global uh, weight and uh, and also liver fat are the SGLT2 inhibitors that are not as strong for the liver for uh, as the as the GLP-1, but they reduce glucotoxicity. So uh, at the same time, they are positive for uh, for the uh, for the people with diabetes, and they have the advantage to be an oral um, an oral medicine compared to the GLP-1 that are uh, instead an injectable. Even if we have now new oral uh, uh, semaglutide, so probably this will change uh, also for the for the patients because it will be easier to take uh, uh, to take these drugs. And um, we don't have to. There are also other drugs that could be uh, favorable. I think it's a it's, it's a new scenario, and we are waiting also for the uh, for the new uh, trials to see how positive will be for uh, for the liver. I think that will be very important. Wonderful, uh, Camila. Any co any comments about you know what do you see coming uh, down the pike? Yeah, yeah. So of course, I think all of our wishes is that that we are gonna see a coordinated approach um, in the endocrinologist department. Hopefully, this would be the best for our patients. They are there, and and um, maybe all of us should go to the departments, and you know hire a medical student or a nurse or anybody who can be trained in doing the fiber scan. It's a five minute um, scan, easy to do. And I think maybe we should just, you know, do it. Maybe, you know, all of us could go there and make it happen. Um, we, of course, it's difficult um, to to make the, the, the cooperation, but but I think we could do it. 
Absolutely. It should no. become like, uh, sorry, the DEXA for osteoporosis, uh, something that is, uh, you know, becoming a routine. And as, uh, as soon as we will have enough FibroScan uh, or other VCTA machine to, to do this, I think this will become a routine and maybe, you know, for people will become uh, easy to say, oh, you know, I want this exam. We have to make it happen and then it will be easy to uh, to have it available for everybody. I totally agree. And, you know, at least in Odense, in Denmark, you know, it's the people who, who are the most dysregulated who come into the hospitals and they have a much higher progression rate. Um, they are really high risk patients and they go into one office and get their foot check and into another office, you know, all in once. So it's so easy to to implement it here. Yeah, absolutely. Laurent? Yes, so in, in follow-up of what Camilla said regarding the screening, uh, I mentioned our result, but of course we're not advocating for performing liver biopsy in a uh, uh, um, diabetic patient in the diabetes clinic. was just to show that uh, the magnitude of the issue, and especially diabetes, has probably been overlooked. Now, of course, in your practice, you're going to use NIT, NIT, the context of use is critical. And as you mentioned initially, Zobair, uh, the good news for the field is there are four international guidelines suggesting that you should start with a FIP4 followed by the more specific test that is VCT or ELF. This is mainly, I think, tailored for primary care because uh, there is Increasing evidence that FIP4 is, does not work very well in uh, diabetic patients, probably related to the fact that the pretest probability, so in other words, the prevalence of advanced fibrosis is much higher. And uh, usually in primary care, it's less than 5%, whereas in diabetes clinic, it's at least 20, 30, maybe 40%. So uh, you should, of course, start with a more specific test. And I think in that respect, transatelastography is really the best test. But for the moment being, in, in the Queen Nash project, uh, we proposed very simple um, and, uh, parameter that you can be using because the, the situation is, for the moment being, that most diabetes clinics do not have access to fibers. And these are basically uh, components of the FIF4, so age, transaminase, and platelet counts, and metabolic parameters such as waist circumference, HDL cholesterol, and GGT. So if you combine this, uh, the OROC was not bad. It was 0.77, and you were able to spot the most advanced patient. And this can be applied next Monday in your clinic. So this is, again, the low-hanging fruit. Of course, if you have access to a fiber scan, then the accuracy is better. And my guess is that in five years, uh, most diabetes clinic will have a fiber scan as they also uh, for screening uh, or the nephropathy or the, the cardiovascular disease. And this will part of, of the be part sorry of the, the workup of diabetes patient in the clinic. And I'm sure, Amelia, you, you, you would concur with opinion. Yeah, I, I, think, I think those are incredibly good points. So we are sort of coming to the end of this uh, pro uh, program. Uh, I'll ask Amelia and Camilla to 
to maybe just uh, you know tell tell us anything else you think would be is is important in your sort of top of mind in terms of what would be uh, what would be what what excites you about this field as it goes uh, that's going forward. Camila, you want to go first? You go, you go. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's uh, to me, it's really exciting uh, that uh, we see a future for uh, the uh, the cure, or at least, you know, to stop the progression of the, this disease, um, because uh, uh, I think it's the new screening because now we have a new way to screen uh, and to find uh, the people uh, also at early stage. And then uh, also to stop um, and uh, regress those that are in the early stage. And we hope in the near future also to have uh, a cure for those that have an uh, mesh with advanced liver fibrosis. And I think it, everything that has been uh, done and all the trials that are ongoing are really promising. And especially because uh, they, when, uh, when we were writing the last guidelines, uh, one of the critique was, uh, you know, you are screening for something where there is uh, no cure, no medication, and uh, so there is not the cost effectiveness. I think right now, as you said, Zobayer, there will be a reason to screen. And uh, not only because uh, there will be drugs, but also because we know we can find the people that are at risk early on, that uh, they can um, regress uh, spontaneously, uh, you know, by changing their lifestyle. And those that probably will need more medication and work, and probably they will take longer, but for sure, there is a hope for uh, this disease that is uh, so prevalent and uh, where you know, and uh, you have done a lot of work on this field. So I think this is what is exciting that finally we are working for something that can uh, uh, can see the light in the end of the tunnel and something that will uh, will be hopefully, you know, we will have a very good news in the in the early, you know, Probably in the early, maybe next year we will have a first uh, uh, the first medication approved. Hopefully, we hope for that. Wonderful, Camila. Yeah, just quickly. So I'm really excited about the new Met ALD, the new kid on the block. I think it's going to be exciting to to see more studies in in this um, in this uh, categorization. And then I just feel that we are, we have so much amazing research and now we just come to the point where we need to implement it. And this really excites me. Wonderful. Well, you know, we, we, we spent uh, about an hour to talk about this very important uh, topic of why our colleagues in diabetology should really care about this disease, Marcel D. And, and, you know, the prevalence is almost 68% in their population with diabetes. Uh, what a third of them have actually advanced fibrosis. And uh, these are the patients who are at risk for terrible outcomes in terms of mortality and liver cancer and, and, and uh, liver-related mortality. There are very simple tools, uh, you know, with FIP4 or maybe better tests with uh, transelastrography or ALF tests uh, that we can sort of at least just stratify those patients who have, you know, who are at, at high risk. And there are guidelines. There are multiple guidelines they're cost effective, we've shown them. One opportunity we have is that although there are multiple guidelines, there may be slight differences. And I think it'd be good to bring them together with the uh, sort of a global perspective of how we actually use these guidelines. And as you heard, 
there are things we can do, uh, you know, from uh, uh, recommendation about, you know, diet that is uh, that is not high processed food uh, by, you know, reducing uh, alcohol um, uh, in, you know, smoking, other things that could potentially uh, help these patients. There are drugs that are currently available to address the risks. Uh, like diabetes, the GLP ones are are there. I mean, we we can we can use those drugs, uh, and there are there are a number of drugs that are going to come down the pike. The the one that's closest is the uh, thyroid beta receptor uh, agonist uh, that we are hoping that will become available to our patients. The GLP ones, the PANPAR, uh, PANPPAR agonist, and and other uh, sort of family of drugs will give us an opportunity to combine that with lifestyle. And, and ultimately make a difference in in, uh, in in this field. So coming together, I'm, I'm actually pretty optimistic in terms of our colleagues in diabetology. The awareness is still low, but I've seen more and more uh, sort of uh, sessions and their their meetings. And in my perspective is that listen, you're 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 screening your patients for retinopathy, you're for nephropathy, for other things, and this is a liver disease that should be screened accordingly and should not be any hesitation. So. With that, I'd like to uh, thank my uh, friends and colleagues and co-panelists, uh, 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 Camilla, um, uh, Amelia, and Laurent. Thank you very much for joining, and thank you uh, for all of you to, to participate, and hope to see you all soon. Thank you.